You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. I didn't think I would come back to Portland. Um, I hadn't planned that far ahead. And when we were in New York, one of the things that we really liked was the diversity. And we really wanted to be in a place where our kids could grow up with some diversity. Um, so, you know, it's, I'm sort of pleasantly surprised by um, what's happened in Portland in that, you know, I really think there's a lot of strength that comes from diversity. I think that's the one thing about about my kids uh, is they are happy. Uh, uh, they're they're happy to be with each other, and I don't mean just uh, the Somali kids and the uh, the kids from the Congo. They're happy with everybody because uh, uh, what I think is a wonderful thing is that the white players and the black players can, because of the game, they they mesh together. Uh, they understand it's 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 like an international language. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you're listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 261, Hometown Proud, airing for the first time on Sunday, September 18, 2016. Mainers feel a fierce connection to their hometowns, and rightfully so. We are shaped by where we are raised and in some cases have an opportunity to offer our gifts back to these communities. Today's guests returned as adults to live and work in their hometowns. Dr. Renee Fay LeBlanc is a physician and chief medical officer at Greater Portland Health. Michael McGraw is the coach of the state championship Lewiston Boys soccer team. I know you will enjoy listening to our conversations. Thank you for joining us. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. It's always very fun to have people in the studio with me whose um, names and reputation succeeds them. And this individual, in a good way, this individual is a board-certified physician. This is Dr. Renee Fay LeBlanc, who attended medical school at the University of Vermont and completed her residency in internal medicine at New York University. Renee has been working in the Portland area for the last 10 years and as the chief medical officer at Greater Portland Health since 2014. Renee loves providing vital primary care services to the community in Portland where she was born and raised. She now lives in Portland with her husband and two sons. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. I really do love the story of being born and raised and educated and going away for your education, doing a little bit of doctoring elsewhere, and then being back here again and helping out the people in the city. I mean, that's that's a great story, and it doesn't always happen. Yeah, um, and I think it was not a story that was planned out that way. Um, I left for college and uh, didn't expect to move back to Maine. Um, and then... Um, 
you know, was pre-med in college mostly because I liked science and um, wanted to be a biology major and being pre-med was pretty similar to that. Um, so after, medi- um, after, after Holy Cross where I went to college, um, I actually spent a year abroad um, in Guyana, South America with a Watson Fellowship and um, was supposed to be learning about traditional healing there, but um, that's a very long story, but it was a great experience. And then from there, actually went out to Oakland, California, where I worked as a medical assistant for a couple of years um, before going to medical school. And then um, when I went to medical school, I decided I wanted to be closer to my family, so um, went to the University of uh, Vermont. Um, And then my husband was getting an MFA in poetry um, at the same time that I was going to do my residency, and it was either Iowa or Manhattan. <laughs> so that's how we ended up um, in New York City, and then um, ended up spending four years in New York City. Um, I completed my residency there, he completed his MFA, um, and had our first child, and um, quickly decided that our 400 square foot third floor walk up um, wasn't uh, wasn't gonna do it for us so we really moved back to Maine to be closer to family and um, it wasn't until we got here that we really understood I mean I had been gone for almost 20 years and so um, that there's a really good writing and arts community here for my husband also Um, it's a great place to raise our kids Um, and the medical community here um, is just, I just think that it's filled with really um, smart, compassionate people. Um, so it was a nice place um, to, to call home. Um, so we sort of circled back, um, and it's been 10 years now that we circle back, and I think um, we, my husband and I both feel really lucky um, that we did. And um, my job right now um, at Greater Portland Health is extremely fulfilling for me because um, it's a very much a place that wants to make our community better. Um, and I think it's um, uncommon that people get that opportunity to really do something that they love, um, that they feel is making a difference um, in the place where they grew up and where they're, you know, raising their kids so so I feel really fortunate about the whole thing and none of it was planned <laughs> unless there's some bigger something that maybe maybe was. maybe and you know it's so interesting to think back about decisions that you've made or things that have happened and then you know years later you think huh that really um brought me to a place that I never you know never imagined it would so yeah so it's been good Tell me about Greater Portland Health. That is uh, a public health program and also a clinical program for the city of Portland. So Greater Portland Health um, was previously called the Portland Community Health Center. We just changed our name. Um, We are a federally qualified health center, which means that we are supported um, through grant funding from the federal government um, to take care of people regardless of their ability to pay. Um, which is very important to me. Um, And the health center started in 2009 um, 
it actually was a group of community members who really wanted to bring a health center to Maine who put together a proposal that was initially um, denied. And then when Obama took office, he um, granted 11, no, not 11, 100 um, health centers who had been denied. He um, he granted them grants to become health centers. And the Portland Community Health Center was one of those places. So it started out as a... Um, as a joint venture with the city of Portland. And the um, over time, the goal was to um, be an independent um, nonprofit, which is what we are now. Um, we're governed by a community board that needs to be um, at least 50% patients. Um, and they really set um, the direction and the tone of the health center. Um, so the health center has grown very rapidly over the last seven years um, from one site and a couple hundred patients um, to now we have five different sites, um, 6,500 patients, um, and are growing, continuing to grow rapidly. We've got several new programs that we're working on right now um, for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, healthcare has changed a lot. And so um, as a federally qualified health center, um, we have the opportunity and have been um, writing a lot of grants, trying to keep as many services as possible um, in Portland. Um, we also have an interesting sort of environment here. Um, one thing is that we didn't expand Maine Care. Um, we're the only state in New England that did not do that, um, and that has really hurt our citizens. Um, the other thing is that we have a lot of people who come to Portland um, to get away from violence in other places. Um, so a lot of people here seeking asylum who don't um, have access to services. And so a lot of those patients come to get um, their care at the health center. We also are a regular, you know, primary care practice. And so we see people um, with any kind of health insurance. Um, people sometimes um, tell me, well, you know, I don't want to go to the health center because I wa don't want to take somebody's spot. Um, and it's actually the opposite. I mean, it really helps us if we have patients who have insurance. We bill their insurance, and it helps us pay for those patients who can't pay. Um, and so we have a variety of different patients. We see kids and adults. Um, we have um, a a integrated behavioral health model. So our teams, we, we, um, we have teams that include physicians, um, nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, licensed clinical social workers, nurses. Um, we're in the process of bringing in some more psychiatry, um, in the process of developing a um, infectious disease team. Um, and we're also um, taking over or transitioning the um, the healthcare centers in the schools um, will also be running those starting in the fall. So there's a lot happening at the health center. It's really, um, it's really growing. It's a very vibrant place. Um, in addition to the medical and behavioral health services, we have um, community health workers who help people with, you know, where to get food, housing, transportation. Um, we have 
um, financial counselors who try to help people get insurance if they can, um, and then put on our slide if they can't. Um, but we really try to wrap services around people. Um, so it's not just their physical health that we're worried about, but um, their you know, living conditions, um, their working conditions, their mental health, kind of all um, together. What does it mean to be a federally qualified health center? So federally qualified health centers, um, there are 19 requirements um, that are set up by the federal government, and they are things like uh, you have to have a board that's a community board that's more than 50% patients, only a certain um, percentage, I think it's 10% of the board or less, has to be in the healthcare, can be in the healthcare field. So they don't want the board filled with healthcare CEOs, basically. Um, they want it to be community members. Um, they, um, you have to have a sliding scale fee. So for patients, depending on where they are in the poverty line, you have to. Um, to reduce the fee, so some people pay, pay $10, some people may pay $20, some people may pay nothing. Um, so you have to have that in place and um, have to um, see people regardless of their ability to pay. Um, you need to have a pretty rigorous quality improvement program and be able to show the government what you're doing for quality improvement, what you're doing for peer review. Um, we also, as a federally qualified health center, have something called FTCA deeming, which means that we um, get our malpractice insurance through the federal government. Um, so because of that, they want to make sure that we're um, doing due diligence with the care that we provide. Um, the other 19 requirements, I don't remember them all, um, but they're in a similar vein. There are financial requirements, there are governance requirements, there are clinical requirements. Um, so you have to meet all of those 19 requirements in order to stay a federally qualified health center. Um, you need to show that there's a need in the community in order to um, stay a health center. And then in addition to following all of those rules, you need to keep your grants um, up to date, so it's a lot of it's a lot of grant writing, um, but basically, then that means that the federal government will give us um, grant money that we can use um, to pay for some of the services that we offer. Um, especially because right now at the health center, more than fifty percent of our patients really don't have any ability to pay. So it's a it's a lot of people who don't have access to care otherwise. My um, understanding of federally qualified health centers is that they are often in rural areas. So in the state of Maine, we don't have that many urban areas, but this must be somewhat of a unique situation to have this right in Portland. So in large cities, um, there are lots of health centers, actually. The health centers in Maine, you're absolutely right. Most of them are rural health centers, and Portland is an outlier. Um, it's really the only one that is not rural. Um, but in places like um, Boston and um, the Bay Area and um, New York, um, Washington, D.C., um, Chicago all have um, a lot of um, inner city 
healthcare centers as well. So there are, I want to say, around 1,200 federally qualified health centers across the country. And um, and so it's a mixture of rural and, and urban. Um, I think for us at the um, at Greater Portland Health, um, you know, we are part of the Maine Primary Care Association, and so we really work a lot with the other health centers. Um, and a lot, some of the things that we um, deal with are the same, you know, whether you're rural or urban. Um, but some of the things that we deal with are a little bit different. Um, primarily, um, for us, is the the patient population and the diversity that we have, um, and the language um, and cultural diversity that we have, which. Um, Really, the other health centers in the state don't have as much of that, um, but there are other health centers in the country that certainly do. So when you say the diversity of the population, do you mean um, new Mainers who have come from other parts of the world? Yeah, yeah. So we, um, you know, depending on the time period, it um, it's different folks. So for us, um, a lot of the patients who are from the Middle East or... Um, um, Afghanistan, Iraq, um, have been here for a while. So the, the people that we're seeing mostly that are, um, new are coming from, um, Africa. So, um, Burundi, Angola, the DRC, um, is where we're seeing mo- the majority of, um, of the, the newest patients. We certainly have a lot of, um, Somali-speaking patients, they um, there are some that are new, but a lot of them have now been here for a little while. And so the patients that are new, new, most of them speak multiple languages, but um, but a lot of them we communicate with um, them using French. Um, and in Angola, they usually speak Portuguese. So um, so those are actually after English, I think French is the second most common language in the health center right now. And it's African French. It's not people from France. <laughs> well, that's that's so interesting because I remember when I was taking French growing up, and my family is French. I believe your family is also. That's French, right. Mm-hmm. But it's a French Canadian. Yeah. Sometimes it's more of a Parisian French that we're taught in schools. And here you are using some French, but it's not the same French. Yeah. So um, we we do. Um, we do get by okay with the French. Um, it seems like um, that that it seems like there's not a lot lost in translation there. It's the um, Portuguese that's spoken in Angola, which is very different, and so it can take a while to find an interpreter that actually speaks the right Portuguese. Um, to, to communicate uh, with those patients. So that it's a little trickier. The French seems to be a little bit easier. And I know that in addition to having interpreters, you also will sometimes use um, interpreter phones. You'll actually have conversations over the phone lines, and that's an interesting experience as well. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. We actually use the phones most of the time. Um, what we have found is that the communities are pretty small um, and that people 
um, patients don't want an interpreter to show up that they might know in another capacity. It makes them very uncomfortable. Um, now, that's not always the case, and some people really want that live interpreter, and they'll want a specific person to come and interpret for them, which is fine. Um, but otherwise, we do use the telephone a lot, and it is um, kind of an interesting interaction. Um, some of the telephone interpreters are wonderful and um, and some of them are not and then you know you, I've done this before where you know the patient sort of looks at me like this is not working and um, and so we hang up and call someone else um, but uh, but yeah so we use the we use the phone interpreters quite a bit um, the other thing that we do is we hire people who can speak multiple languages whenever possible so most of our front desk staff speak multiple languages um, we have um, providers and nurses um, and medical assistants um, who speak multiple languages and so um, within the health center you know we try to have that um, capacity in case we need to call someone um, that sort of thing you went to king middle school I did. Where your son, one of your sons, is now going, and you graduated from Portland High School. I did. Did you ever think as you were growing up that you would find yourself back in a situation where you were caring for Portland patients, but that they might not be the same types of Portland patients you might expect? Yeah. Well, you know, when I was at Portland High, um, Portland was a resettlement um, area back then. Um, and so, you know, there were kids back then coming from Afghanistan, um, and also um, a lot of kids from um, Southeast Asia. And so, you know, I think even back then, Portland was becoming um, more diverse, and um, and I experienced more diversity at my you know, Portland High School than I did when I went to college, um, which was not very diverse. Um, I didn't think I would come back to Portland. Um, I hadn't planned that far ahead. And when we were in New York, one of the things that we really liked was the diversity. And we really wanted to be in a place where our kids could grow up with some diversity. Um, so, you know, it's, I'm sort of pleasantly surprised by um, what's happened in Portland in that, you know, I really think there's a lot of strength that comes from diversity. Um, and so, you know, my kids right now are at um, Ocean Ave, and my son just finished Ocean Ave and will be at King next um, year. But, you know, they have, they have quite a bit of diversity in their classrooms, which I really like. Um, and, you know, I think that depending on what, um, you know, the decisions that Portland makes, um, there's a way to turn this diversity um, into something that can keep us very strong, um, especially because my, um, a lot of the new Mainers that are here seeking asylum are, are very well educated. <laughs> um, they speak multiple languages, they were professionals in their um, communities, um, and you know, right now it's really difficult for them to um, to work and get jobs. And um, when they do, it's usually not in their field. Um, it's usually low-level service jobs. You know, house cleaning, um, uh, working at hotels. You know, things like that. Um, but they, there's a lot of potential, I think, um, in the community to um, 
to really utilize um, the skills of the new folks that are coming. So I don't know if that answered your question. I think I got a little sidetracked. <laughs> no, that, I think that's a good answer. I mean, especially um, knowing that your experience of Portland growing up wasn't actually as different as one might think, even though we think of Maine as being a fairly Caucasian state. That wasn't your experience of it and not that long ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's certainly more diverse now than it was, um, but there were certainly there was certainly diversity in the high school when I was there. Yeah. One of the most interesting things about your... Um, home situation is that you're married to a poet, (laughs) which I don't know how many people can actually say that, but certainly the doctor-poet combination (laughs) with with the two young children. And I remember, I think that Gibson was maybe our first guest, if not one of our first guests for this entire radio show when he was still the director of The Telling Room. So tell me what that is like in your family yeah so it's crazy and it's wonderful um when i was in residency and gibson was in his mfa program we were always trying to get poets and doctors together (laughs) and it never worked out (laughs) but uh so you know it's interesting one of the reasons why i love what i do is that i listen to stories all day long you know patients come in and tell me these amazing things and um and I try to you know do what I can to try to problem solve and that kind of stuff with them I really love that um and so you know so much about medicine is relationship and story and really that's what Gibson does too um and so it's not so different um you know if you if you sort of look at it that way um but, um, you know, our lives are a little bit of a juggling act um, in terms of, you know, the nuts and bolts of kind of running a household. Um, we do uh, sort of have a little bit of a, um, you know, our our sort of home duties are a little different than other families um, that we know. But, you know, it works for us. Um, Gibson has the ability to be more flexible um, with his time um, than I am, um, and so that's helpful um, for our kids. And um, and I think, you know, we both try to talk to the kids like they understand what we do, they understand why we do it, um, they understand it's really important to us, um, and that in our own ways we're both kind of giving back to our community. I think. Um, Gibson's poetry and the work that he does is all really based in um, in this community and trying to bring arts and um, education and um, imagination to both kids and adults um, and really seeing that those are ways that people, you know, that telling your story is a really important part of your life, um, understanding things, trying to write write things down or say them out loud however you want to express yourself so so his um, professional life is very much about trying to be a positive force in the community um, just like mine is Um, and so I think my kids get that even when it's annoying if we're you know not doing what they want us to do at that moment (laughs) 
But the other thing is that it does take a village. We have an amazing amount of um, wonderful friends and neighbors and um, and feel very supported by the community that we live in. And um, Gibson actually, um, <laughs> he's a poet. He's also a hockey player and he um, had an injury about a month ago where he had an open fracture of his humerus and required emergent orthopedic surgery in um, several days in the hospital. And um, it sort of turned upside down kind of our like, huh, we sort of had this, you know, work life balance thing going until he couldn't <laughs> participate. Um, but uh, but it was actually, you know, I mean, a lot of people helped us out and the kids rose to the occasion and, um, you know, we, we worked through it. So I feel like, you know, every day is a little bit of an adventure. <laughs> well, I hope that his broken arm continues to heal quickly. And then that Me way... Me too. <laughs> <laughs> and it's nice that he has a doctor to help him work through this transition Mm, i'm not sure he thinks that (laughs) well i have to admit whenever people in my family are sick i think that they would rather that i wasn't a doctor because i don't think i'm as nice as some of the nurses that i know Mm -hmm. the nurses that i work with are so super warm and friendly and compassionate and caring and i'm thinking my kids would love it if i could be a little bit less clinical and a little bit more um soft and fuzzy and warm absolutely (laughs) i'm not saying you're like that but no i'm certainly um no one gets much sympathy (laughs) well it sounds like you give sympathy in the more in a broader spectrum yes in a larger way so (laughs) i wouldn't discount that possibility well it's really been lovely to speak with you today and to hear more about um greater portland health i know that there's been some controversy swirling about in the community but i decided not to talk about that with you (laughs) because really it sounds like you are doing great work your entire group is doing great work you're moving forward you're offering great health care and so i encourage people to um, learn more about greater portland health we've been speaking with board certified physician renee dr renee Fay leblanc who was born and raised here right here in portland where she still lives and now offers care to her patients and we'll have information about Greater Portland Health on our show notes page at lovemainradio.com. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch Lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy big stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love Main Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Ruth Hamill, Joanne Perrin, Alan Bunker, and Jean Jack. For complete show details, please visit our website, artcollectormain.com. Don't miss the third Maine Live event taking place on September 22nd at the Portland Museum of Art, presented by your friends at Maine Magazine. Take the day to be inspired by stories about creating a vibrant state from 15 Maine speakers. 
Tickets are $100 and are sure to go fast. Find out more at MainLiveEvent.com. As a longtime soccer mom and actually lacrosse mom, swimming mom, just you name it, I've been that kind of mom and athlete. I'm always very happy to have in the studio with me um, people who coach. And today we have a very special coach. This is Coach Michael McGraw, Mike, who is the head coach of the boys soccer team at Lewiston High School. He led the team to the state championship last fall which was no small feat. It's a really big deal, and it's also a really big deal that you came in and were willing to have this conversation today, so thank you. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. Now, this was, I believe, the first time that Lewiston High School won a state championship. Yep. It's the first time in probably, well, since 1974. That's when that's when uh, Paul Netto, who was the uh, uh, coach at the time, he started the program, and I like to call him the first father of soccer in our area. And the reason that this is a, it's a particularly big deal is because you received really national coverage for this win. CNN, USA Today, um, Portland Press Herald, obviously, Lewiston Sun Journal, those are both within our state. But because you had such a diverse team that was able to pull together and really make a go of it last year. Yeah, uh, well, first of all, the uh, the team is a, uh, very talented and mature and had playing played together for a long time the players uh, love each other and uh, and the community that they live in uh, really supported them and I think the people involved in making them the players that they are uh, really backed them up and trained a lot of those kids so I'm kind of lucky uh, and as far as diversity goes, I mean, the diversity is, is similar to the one where uh, uh, Rocco Franzelli at Portland and Joel Castengay at Deering. I mean, that's, they, they have uh, similar diversified teams as well. So, I mean, they, they are, they're, they're two people that I actually like to talk to, especially about our teams. And we, we do talk about, about issues and things that occur. But this team, uh, they did something very special. Uh, and uh, the sky was the limit for them, and they reached for it. From what I understand, you had six different nations that were represented on your team last year? Yep. We had uh, Somalia, Kenya, uh, the Congo, Germany, Turkey, and, of course, the USA. And I believe that there was a fair number of um, the Somali students who had actually been together in a refugee camp before they even came to the United States. Well, I don't know if they were all together, but so their parents were in refugee camps and they were either babies or, uh, or young kids while they were there. Uh, and since refu- refugee camps are sometimes quite large, they may not have known each other. But uh, certainly the... The one thing that bonds them, the one thing that brings them together, is the game. You've you were born and raised in Maine. Yep. You graduated from Lewiston High School, and you've really lived and been a part of the Lewiston community for all but I believe the four years of your education. Yep, that's true. And which and and then you didn't go too far. You went down to Gorham and got your your teacher education. Yes, I did. Yep. So. You've seen a lot of changes, I would say. Uh, yeah, um, I've seen changes that uh, from a mill town to uh, uh, a 
town that is more service oriented and uh, becoming a lot more diverse. Uh, there's, there's some great energy in town to create some nice spaces to live and work and have business. And uh, uh, the school is outstanding. I mean, it's still got its share of issues with the poor and academically trying to uh, reach everybody. But I'll tell you, uh, Lewis and Auburn, these, I believe the schools are just trying the hardest they can to make sure they reach every single kid and that no kid gets left uh, without an opportunity. And I'm finding that it works. It works. All All we have to do is get the... Uh, the adults, parents, and the kids all on the same page, and uh, some good things are going to happen. You've been part of the school system now uh, as an educator for 40 years? Yep. And you teach biology now? Teach biology, yeah. So what have you noticed about um, the, the academic situation? I mean, you're, you're a coach, but you also teach, so are you noticing similar things happening within the classroom that you're noticing on the sports field? Uh, yeah, you know, like like if you talk about the influx of some of our uh, African population, um, I've seen that uh, they've gone from, this is a really good thing, they've gone from uh, struggling with the language, struggling with um, school culture and responsibility to one of which they want to excel. They want to to uh, do well. Now, granted, it's like everybody else, you, you get some kids that can't do well, that don't do well, or, or refuse to do well, but there are more kids that are, are uh, honor roll students. As a matter of fact, we, two years ago, Muno, who was a Somali student, was the president of her class, which is phenomenal. You know, those kids and those families, their families are really pushing them to excel in school. And not just to graduate, not just to pass, but to excel, to go on to good colleges. And and uh, I've seen it, and it's working. As a matter of fact, uh, one of my former students, uh, two of one of my former students is uh, uh, Bates grad. And she spoke at one of the celebrations that we had. Um, I've got a player who, uh, two players that are going to go to uh, prep school to prepare themselves for uh, high-level soccer and high-level education. Uh, one of them was recruited by uh, Bates College, Swarthmore, and Dartmouth. I mean, they, they, you know, it's out there if they want it, and uh, um, and some of the kids are reaching for that, which I think is is the the single most important change for that population from 10 years ago to today. Uh, also, our school is is uh, um, doing a lot to try to ramp up the rigor, and I'm finding that uh, um, that it's it's starting to work. Uh, previous superintendent wanted kids kids to learn how to write better for communication purposes. I'm seeing better writing even from students who struggle. And uh, I got to give credit to the teachers for buying into that and their elementary school teachers who have really worked so hard. I mean, we have we have teachers at uh, all levels that just bust their butt to make sure that they're getting uh, the best out to, their, uh, to our kids. And I'm happy for that. Because that's high school. I get that and it makes my job a little easier. Well, yeah, I, w I was thinking as you were talking about 
being a high school coach and you're you're a high school teacher so really you get the benefit of um, all of the education and all of the coaching and all of the community building and all of the parenting that has happened over the first uh, say 12 14 years of a child's life mm-hmm. and that's important yes yeah, it is uh, I'm uh, I I'm lucky I'm a really lucky coach and uh, um, a lucky person that I've had longevity. Um, I've seen my share of success. I'm very happy with that, especially uh, throughout my coaching career. I've been lucky with uh, having great kids who believed in me, believed in what what I do. I'm lucky now because I have phenomenal players. I have unbelievably, unbelievably good assistant coaches great assistant coaches and up from the seventh grade on up I have uh, uh, several people in the community uh, one of which was my eighth grade coach Abdullah Abdi who is who is probably I call the second father of soccer in Lewiston because our kids just look up to him because he does everything he's a club coach he's uh, He's an advisor. He's a counselor. He's like he's like another parent for them. Uh, his son is one of my assistant coaches. A great coach. Uh, I don't know what I'd do without him. And and uh, another another uh, coach, Dan Gish, who's been my assistant since 2000. He is the one of the most respected teachers, uh, and he loves the kids. They love him. And uh, and then I've got a goalkeeper coach who's crazy. And you have to be crazy to be a goalkeeper. But I love the guy. He's uh, had tremendous experience throughout the world, and he brings that with him with his passion. And he wasn't sure he was going to coach because high school kids weren't his thing. He was more like college and professional. But as soon as he met my kids, whoa, it just completely turned him around. He loves them, and they love him back and uh, because they, they have that same passion for the game. Um, it's. I get chills just thinking about it. What is special about your kids, like as as individuals and as a group? Why are they so passionate? Um, it's part of their culture. I mean, that's their uh, um, their culture loves the game. If you go anywhere else in the world, uh, and you you may talk about NBA basketball, it could be rugby, it could be. Uh, lacrosse someplace or cricket or anything but you go any place in the world and you mention the game football and it's it's like a religion if you go to northern maine for basketball that's a religion snowmobiling and basketball right well this is and that can only that's only actually seasonal but when it comes to the game of uh football soccer um for these kids it's 365 days of the year when they plow out the colisee in the winter, they'll throw down two chunks of snow for goals. There'll be 24, 25 kids out there playing in their street shoes in the winter. And uh, um, as soon as the grass is open down at uh, Simad, uh, Simad uh, Payne Park downtown where the balloon festival is, it's it's amazing. I, I went down there and there's no, no lie, there's 80 kids playing. And there's various different groups that are warming up, getting ready to play a game on a makeshift main field and you know their ages go from uh, from 12 to 35 it's it's a phenomenon so I, that's why I'm lucky I mean a, a lot of other coaches they have to fight with baseball basketball hockey to uh, build in a little bit of time in the offseason my kids are there
and uh, I'm lucky, very lucky. It's interesting for me to think about um, even playing during snow. I mean, I have three soccer players in my family. I don't think any of them would have gone outside at any stage to play soccer in the snow. And these are people that many of them have come from a very warm climate to a very cold climate, and still they're out there. I think they got to stay warm. But, you know, the other thing is is, uh, they live downtown or uh, uh, in low-income housing for the most part, and uh, they just get out. And it's, you know, get get a, away from staying inside and, and doing something that they love. You know, for some people, it might be reading or art or, uh, um, you know, for a lot of other people, they're able to go cross-country skiing or, uh, you know, travel. But these kids, this is all they've got. And uh, uh, way I take that back. They have really bought into FIFA little xbox or playstation oh my god but while it's nice outside while i while i can play because i know several of my players once uh once it gets dark they'll go home plug in a game and uh i especially know two players that will stay up till about three or four in the morning and have to wake them up and that's only because they're so competitive you know if uh if this guy wins a game then his brother will come in and say we'll play again we'll you know they'll go back and forth and anybody's there they, um it's it's fun it's fun and uh, uh it, you know sometimes i can't take that away from them i've i've spoken with other uh young athletes who are muslim and one of the things that can be an interesting balance is that sometimes ramadan will fall during the sports season and you can't, I believe, eat or drink anything from sun up to sun down. And if that falls during soccer season, how does that work for you? Two things that I noticed uh, early on, uh, Ramadan came during the season. So, um, you know, after about a week, they their bodies become a little bit acclimated, but you kind of worry about this. Um, and I distinctly remember it was during during the regular season. We had a night game, and uh, at halftime, I had to wait until uh, they replenished themselves before I talked because there's no way they'd be able to actually listen to me when they've been fasting all day. So uh, myself, my coach, would sit there and wait, and uh, a couple of the kids would bring in, bring down food and tea, and and let them go, and the, the whole team just ate for a while so we take the, the 10 minute break took about five to seven minutes for them to replenish themselves and then i could talk so we had to make sure what we had to say was done quickly and that actually is probably pretty good because with teenagers uh, what you say in the first three minutes is totally forgotten in the last three minutes and uh, so but that was that was interesting to see um when ramadan occurred during preseason tryouts when we had double sessions that's when I worried because of the weather um, but uh, we we made a couple of adjustments and uh, you know we didn't take too much off of them but uh, just wanted to make sure that we watch carefully to make sure because these kids will go as hard as they can go and when they start to falter I know it's not because they're being lazy although there are some lazy players and uh, you, but you, you get to know who they are. And um, so that works out pretty good. 
you know, uh, we've gone through it and uh, know know what we'd have to do. So the next cycle that it comes during the season is going to be a few years away. So you're just you. It's it's like anything with a with an athlete. If you know that there's something that you need to work around, you work around it. Yep. Yep. This just happens to be maybe a larger group of of your athletes, but it's it's not yeah. it's not undoable. Yeah. No, um, they they. What I like about them is that uh, they'll play pretty well, pretty hard, and then they'll say, "Coach Ramadan's going to be this coming Tuesday, so on Thursday's game, watch out, we're going to be ready." And in fact, that doesn't really happen. Because then, then they're fat and happy, or not fat, but but you know they they become satisfied, and uh, it takes them a while to get back into that routine again. But happy, they are definitely happy. I think that's the one thing about about my kids uh, is they are happy. Uh, uh, they're they're happy to be with each other, and I don't mean just uh, the Somali kids and the uh, the kids from the Congo they're happy with everybody because uh, uh, what I think is a wonderful thing is that the white players and the black players can because of the game they they mesh together Uh, they understand it's 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 like an international language you know the kid from Turkey the kid from Germany the kid from the Congo and uh, the kid from Somalia all play the, the game the same way and they enjoy each other. Um, what's interesting is that most of them know maybe four or five languages, you know. Uh, um, and uh, my white kids are are great with them. You know, and and I I always check in and say, "How's it going? Does does everybody in, include you? Um, are you guys getting?" And they invariably say, "Coach, we're we're fine. We're we're great. They they like each other." Um, and I think it's because they play the game. It is. It's. It's interesting um, to think about just even the idea of play. And these are older children, obviously. But I think sometimes that that commonality it, it can kind of transcend big issues that adults worry about sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, and Kevin Mills, who's a reporter for uh, the Sun Journal, wrote a tremendous article about uh, soccer and integration in, uh, about three years ago. And I think he got some kind of a national award for it. But in there, he had asked me how I got my kids to at least trust each other or, or play together or something like that. And, and uh, I didn't think very much of it at the time, but there was one scenario that uh, in preseason that I found that what I did was I uh, saw the uh, Somali kids in one area in the shade getting ready for practice and uh, the white kids up on the side of a hill out in the sun and why they were out in the sun at 95 degree weather they just anyway and so they, they were there and I said to my coach I said this this really I really don't think this should should happen. They're seg- segregated, separated. So by the third day of the tryouts, uh, after after the teams have been picked, I said, "Okay, you 
you guys down here you i want you right here in the middle you guys up here i want you right here in the middle and uh then i mixed them up i took this kid put him here and that kid and i, I i've explained this I've, I've told the story dozens of times but i you know that's i said this is how you have to play on the field and uh and so what i what i did was was i said you have to you have to do this and an amazing thing had happened uh several kids started smiling so after practice i said what were you guys smiling about this coach we all wanted to do that but no you know no one no one was going to take the first step so you did it and that was pretty good and uh um it was you know it was kind of a special thing that happened and so we it it evolved it, it the the idea stuck and it evolved we had to make sure that uh they they took care of that and every once in a while i have to revisit it um but it was a a pretty special moment we had um jim wellahan on the show and he was talking about uh he was talking about the french canadian and the irish catholic french catholic irish catholic and in lewiston mm -hmm. and how they were kind of they were two very different groups and for a long time they kind of circled around each other and even there was some animosity there was some difficulties but eventually everybody kind of came to some yeah. general understanding of one another and obviously your last name i'm guessing you must have a little irish in you yeah i'm a uh, scottish Irish. I don't know. It's a you got some of that some of that Celtic yeah, thing yeah, going on, yeah. but isn't it interesting that you know that we keep like replaying the same newsreel? You know, you bring people in and you have to try to figure it out, and you define you define some commonalities, and then you kind of move in that um, move in a direction together. But it seems like the story just it's not one that is unheard of. Nope it's uh, it's it's interesting because. Uh, my mother's last name is Rivard. And so I'm used to going over to my grandmother's house for dinner when we were little. And it was just it was just a, a, a cacophony of French and English and hybrid language going on with 15 people having dinner. And, uh, and then going over to my, uh, my cousin Bruce's house, my father's side, and it, it being that being rural Maine type of uh, environment. So, I mean, it's like, it, it was it was an easy thing for me. As a matter of fact, I think I think I learned French first before I learned English. Um, and, uh, but I've done a little bit of research on that because I, I would tell people that, that uh, you know, early on when they had the French-Irish baseball game, they always had a French-Irish baseball game. They were always supposed to be nine innings, but they get to the seventh inning, and if it got that far without a fight, it was considered a good game, you know? And uh, I remember the, I think the first Lewiston Edward Little football game, um, one of the uh, sports reports on it was, it was a very spirited game, um, and that had to be held up a couple times to break up fights on the field and in the stands. And I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't just rivalry of two schools, but rivalry against French and Irish. Um, and, and if you could look, you could look at a lot of instances that um, that, that occurred. And it probably was the same in Biddeford Saco, uh, Bangor Brewer, Waterville Winslow. You know, all of these cities that were associated with rivers 
and so it it's 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 out there and it's it to me is interesting that uh, when you get a population like like uh, the immigrants coming to Maine and, and everything that goes on and I don't think it, I think everybody took a history course or Maine history but they forget well, I think that's true. I think it's always it's it's harder to sometimes be in the moment, but understand that this moment is not it's it's not new. It's something that has absolutely happened before. And I also think it's interesting that um, sometimes what we need to do is engage. Sometimes to just pretend that the conflict doesn't exist and to not get out there on the field and play soccer or have the the French Irish game. I mean, sometimes to just pretend that 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 there's not something simmering, that that really doesn't work well at all. You actually need to have a place where you can have some healthy competition. You can have some back and forth, and have some shared understanding of something that you feel passionate about. Having an outlet to uh, expend a lot of the energy, whether it's positive or negative, is uh, is a healthy thing. You know, uh, my my feeling about competition, especially with my players, is is if you go into a game spiritually tactically and physically ready ready to play and prepared to play and you do absolutely everything you can if you are the superior team that you should win if you're the inferior team then you should lose but but that isn't always the case games aren't won on paper and I think games are won more mentally and with heart and that I tell my players that if you if you've expended everything, you've done everything that you can, then that's why you shake a guy's hand at the end of the game, because you played played a great game. Um, that's what real sportsmanship is about. And uh, um, and and I think I think our kids, I think Maine kids for the most part, actually do that very well, because I think their coaches have promoted sportsmanship for the most part, at least the informed coaches. So the younger coaches who haven't been informed or all the coaches who never did this, well, it's it's just something that they have to they have to learn. But in my opinion, what I've seen with with uh, other coaches and other teams, our kids do a good job. Well, it has truly been a pleasure to have you in, uh, talking with me about the Lewiston soccer program, the boys' soccer program. And congratulations on your Class A state championship from 2015. I wish you all the best um, in 2016. We've been speaking with Coach Michael McGraw, who is the head coach of the boys' soccer team at Lewiston High School. Congratulations on all of you, all that you've accomplished, and thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. This has been a great experience for me, too. Thanks. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 261, Hometown Proud. Our guests have included Michael McGraw and Renee Faye-LeBanc. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Hometown Proud show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. 
May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.